Um, spoiler, if, if this child of Ruth and Boaz is uh, related to King David, you know who else that means he's related to? Jesus. That's not in my sermon today, but I just wanted to point it out uh, in case anyone left this series without realizing that the story of Ruth is part of Jesus' story. It's pretty important. Okay, well, here we are. Uh, the final chapter of Ruth. Much has happened in four short acts. Of course, a thread running through all of them has been the issue of border crossings and the deep-seated disdain that can exist between people of both sides, one for the other. Israel and Moab were long enemies. Generations of distrust, stereotyping, racism, and storytelling without fact-checking lend themselves to creating deeper divides than a land border ever could. Which makes the move that Elimelech, Naomi, and their boys made in chapter 1 from Bethlehem to Moab suspect at best, disloyal at worst. When the boys grew up and married Moabite women, it sealed the deal on their departure from Israel. And then the worst happened. Elimelech died, and his sons shortly thereafter. And we're left with three widows. Two are local. One is a foreigner, an Israelite, without protection of husband, child, or grandchild. Naomi would have to turn back to Bethlehem, face her tarnished reputation and her poverty. Naomi changed her name to Mara, which means bitterness. And the story could have ended there. For many people across time, it has ended there. For many people today, it still ends there. Except for Ruth. Her presence interrupts the flow of this age-old story. Ruth, Moabite from Moab, the daughter-in-law who refused to return home to her own family and instead chose loyalty to Naomi, even at great risk to her own safety and well-being. Crossing back into Israelite territory was humiliating enough for Naomi, but to do so with a Moabitess on her arm, well, to say it became the talk of the town would be putting it mildly. Once the two widows found a space on the outskirts of town to set up camp, Ruth went to work gleaning in the fields. Fortunately for her, Israel had a law preventing landowners from threshing the corners and edges of their fields, leaving those parts for the use of orphans and widows and foreigners among them. So Ruth collected grain for she and Naomi, whom she loved. But she wasn't able to keep her race a secret. People knew this was Naomi's foreigner daughter-in-law, the Moabites from Moab. Whispers abounded. But as it so happens, the landowner where she was gathering and gleaning took notice of her. And rather than writing her off, Boaz sought to learn more about her. He learned about her love and her loyalty for Naomi. Boaz was impressed. 
He told his workers to leave her alone. And he told Ruth how and where to glean to keep herself safe. He invited her to lunch with him. He sent leftovers home with her for Naomi. He deeply respected Ruth's determination and love for her mother-in-law and supported her in her efforts. Last Sunday, we caught a glimpse of Naomi beginning to pull herself out of her her own darkness. She remembers that she has a responsibility to Ruth to provide for her a future and security, a husband, ideally even children. She remembers that Boaz is a cousin and thus has a responsibility, according to Israelite law, to marry his cousin's widow to provide a son to inherit Malon's name. Go to him, Naomi instructs. Get all prettied up and go to Boaz at the threshing floor after he has spent the evening drinking and partying at the harvest festival. Uncover him and lay against him. He'll tell you what to do. And so giving in to the stereotype of Moabite women as hypersexualized creatures, Ruth does what Naomi suggests. She trusts her mother-in-law. She bathes, dresses beautifully, puts on sweet perfume, brushes her hair, and finds her way to Boaz. What transpires that night, we'll never know. Though we have our suspicions. What we do know is that when he is startled awake by Ruth's presence, she quickly seizes the opportunity to remind Boaz of his role as kinsman redeemer. In essence, she asks him to marry her, and he agrees. He is so taken by her determination, her loyalty, her loving kindness, and frankly, the girl's moxie that he promises to go the next day to have it all sorted out and finalized. Which brings us to our final scene. It's morning in Bethlehem. And a late night of celebrating at the threshing floor has not made Boaz forget his promises to the bold woman who proposed to him the night before. It's true. He is a goel, a kinsman redeemer, to Ruth and Naomi. But, hmm. There is one, one man who is more closely related, who has both the right and the responsibility, according to Israelite law, to redeem these two widows from their poverty, which is shorthand for marrying Ruth, to raise up children with her to perpetuate her dead husband's name. And so the scene shifts from the threshing floor to the village gate. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin, of whom Boaz had spoken, came passing by. So Boaz said, come over, friend, sit down here. And he went over to him and sat down. So one of my favorite discoveries in the Midrash, the Jewish writings called Ruth Rabbah, is that this cousin is actually assigned a rather unfortunate name. Peloni Almoni, which roughly translates to so-and-so. We might say 
What's his face? He is a necessary foil in the story, but definitely one-dimensional. And if we're going to stop for a minute and talk about names, it would be worthy of note that here in chapter 4, Boaz, whose name means strength and swiftness, goes from being an open-hearted, devoted, considerate landowner to a shrewd man, knowledgeable, and perhaps even mildly manipulative in his dealings with cousin so-and-so. Boaz reminds me of Jesus saying about being harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. So Boaz gathers ten others as witnesses and proceeds to present his case with his own particular spin. First, he speaks of Naomi returning from Moab and her desire to now sell the parcel of land which was the inheritance of her deceased son, Malon. Boaz presents the story simply, in such a way that so-and-so's desire to assert his first claim to the land would come easily. You have first claim to it, cousin. I will have second. Well, of course I'll redeem it, so-and-so says. Who wouldn't want to win a jackpot like that? But now Boaz's scheming comes into play. He speaks so everyone can hear him as he recites the requirement of the redeemer of this land of Naomi's to acquire the Moabite. And perhaps nowhere else in the book of Ruth has this word been used so powerfully, so pointedly. The Moabite. You can almost feel the men in the gathering recoil. He doesn't only mention Ruth's nationality. He lays out the obligation of the law. The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are then also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. Listen, that last part did not need to be said out loud. People know how the law works. It's as if Boaz is making sure to push cousin so-and-so in public to acknowledge what his obligation towards Ruth would be were he to redeem Naomi's land. There'd be no way for him to sweep her under the carpet now or to do away with her privately. Boaz has created a situation where exposure and expediency are part of the negotiation. It was risky, but Boaz was smart. This cousin had first right of refusal, but if he accepted, the whole town would be keenly aware of his responsibility to the Moabite. Oh, and they'd be watching him all right, holding him accountable. Turns out the risk was worth it. As was to be expected, cousin so-and-so reneges. I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. It's interesting to note that cousin so-and-so is already a landowner. So the inheritance that he is worried about tarnishing is not his own. It's his son's. He's talking about the future. 
the inheritance he would pass on to his own sons would be spoiled by marrying a Moabite. In the name of both reputation and legacy, so-and-so is willing to be poorer in order to be purer. To this cousin, association with Ruth the Moabite seems akin to death. But Boaz calculated this, and he was right. His rhetoric and staging has helped the imagined to become realized publicly in the presence of witnesses. Boaz used so-and-so's lack of kindness against him. And so without missing a single beat, Boaz declares his intention towards Ruth, and the witnesses reply with, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children and bestow a name in Bethlehem and through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. No more mentioning of Moabite in that account. The crowd blesses Ruth, drawing on the deep legacy of other foreign women who are heroes and matriarchs of Israel. Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. They fold Ruth up into a story of pride and legacy, inheritance, and indeed a name. She is given four mothers, and the family of Ruth and Boaz is given a narrative inheritance. But church, before we leave the scene at the city gate and start gathering our wedding attire, it's probably readily available at the Kennedy household. I want to go back to what's-his-face, to cousin so-and-so, because that guy is important. He's a foil, a caricature, a trope, yes, but he also serves as a warning. My guess, to quote Padraig, is that we are not so much called to identify and expel the so-and-so character in our midst, as it is to find the so-and-so within ourselves. To recognize how fear of tarnish can corrupt our capacity to do business, to demonstrate kindness, and to act according to deep ideals of hospitality and the loving foundations of law. Are there places in our lives where, like so-and-so, we have opted for a lesser thing in the name of perceived purity or reputation? Have we chosen reputation over loving kindness? Have stereotypes and old grudges clouded our ability to be conduits of grace? It's a good question. And it harkens back to the earlier conversation of the sages assigning this book in its reading, its entire reading, in worship alongside the reading of the Torah, the law, as a warning. It is possible for one to keep the law perfectly and yet still be devoid of kindness. Law alone cannot fully heal the world. Only obedience to the law as an act of kindness and generosity 
can do that. The scene at the city gate in chapter 4 of Ruth puts flesh and bones on that assertion. And it invites us to identify times in our own lives when we have been cousin so-and-so. Following the law, protecting our reputation, and the inheritance of our children in the name of rightness and purity. So-and-so is a mirror we are called to hold up to ourselves. And so as the closing music swells, we collectively agree that through this story, through the person of Ruth the Moabite, we find a turning point for law in the land. Her kindness was a political force. Her particularity changed the way a people considered border crossers, intercultural marriages, and provisions. And her association with Boaz meant that she was written into the Davidic lineage and storyline. And furthermore, this neat little point, breaking with tradition, breaking with custom, and even breaking with the law, it is Boaz, not Ruth's dead husband, who is named as the father of that baby boy. That has not been done before. If chapter 3 of Ruth was a story of compassion, determination, and action, then chapter 4 is a demonstration of the accompanying advocacy and policy change. Both are required to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Ruth's ethnicity and all the baggage of generational stereotypes that goes with it means that her kindness and her loyalty is an affront and even a challenge to the racism by which her people were caricatured. As Brene Brown famously says, move in closer. It's hard to hate people up close. The Hebrew story of Ruth is not just a call to our Jewish brothers and sisters. It's a call to us, too, as Christians. Quoting Celtic public theologian Glenn Jordan, Christianity responds to the dilemma of what to do with suffering, what to do with violence and division, with acts of loving kindness. This is our big idea. Kindness. Kindness and grace overcome violence and division. Kindness can even transcend division sometimes by taking into itself the suffering. Kindness, church, come on. Stay with me on this point. Kindness is more than just do-goodery which has some value, of course, in that it can help relieve suffering, but if we're honest, it can also be about the salving of our own conscience. Kindness is never naive about how the world is. It is a choice to love in the face of division. It is courageous. Maya Angelou said, have enough courage to trust love one more time, and always one more time.
Kindness subverts traditional divisions by bringing in those who everyone else seeks to keep out. And it reaches out to those who others wish to keep at arm's length. Kindness is never constrained by the rules. It isn't concerned with fairness. Kindness changes the rules. And it can even change laws. Kindness acts for the benefit of others and never for ourselves or our institutions, organizations, or reputations. It is not concerned with the bottom line. Kindness sees beyond division of ethnicity, politics, sex, or religion, and finds the common good through service. And so perhaps more than ever, in our polarized world, we need Ruth to break into our hearts and minds and our lives to remind us of this fundamental truth. To remind us that it isn't always the flashy and the miraculous that changes the world, it's the ordinariness of our lives and the power of chesed, of loving kindness, God's loving kindness, weaving its way through our ordinary choices every day. That's how the world is changed. I began this series by talking about the importance of storytelling and how narrative is the way human beings construct meaning. Though we have other ways of understanding, such as logic, proof, and analysis, it is storytelling. It is storytelling that influences what we believe and do. Narrative helps us decide who we are, who we were, and who we may yet become. In the end, the story that we have explored these past four weeks tell of the ordinary lives of two widows and a farmer, into which and through which the faithful love of God, the chesed of God, has overflowed. That love has not come in a burning bush or a voice from heaven, but through the ordinary lives and the extraordinary love of human beings one for another, called forth and undergirded by God's love for them. So the story leaves us with a few questions. Where will we recognize the chesed, the loving kindness of God in our lives today? Where and how will we ourselves embody faithful love of God for the people we encounter today? Where will we, through our ordinary and extraordinary lives, be a conduit of God's love and blessing for the world? Ruth's story, Boaz's story, Naomi's story is our story. God has handed us this story. And by God's grace, may we answer the call. To God be all the glory. Amen.